because many, oh, it's a little loud, Aaron. Because many of you we know are, are new to this practice of metta, doing it intensively, even if you've done retreats before, um, to come here and, as Temple was saying last night, find out, you want me to say what? For how long? All the time? Um, it can seem a little overwhelming, just the amount of effort and intentionality we're asking you to put into the practice. And the next question that's a very natural follow-up is, why? You know, why would we want to do this hour after hour after hour, say these phrases over and over again? Hopefully by now, at this time of the retreat, you perhaps had a little glimpse, a taste or more of the power of this practice and the shaping of the mind with intentionality. But as Temple was saying last night, it really helps to have kind of a a big picture view of the effort that we need to put in. We've sometimes, I know I've sometimes said, you know, it's like a marathon, not a sprint. But I don't think even a marathon is a good analogy because there you sort of lay everything out for however many hours it takes and then you collapse. We really want to have, and again, Temple said, it's the, a better analogy is sort of a multi-day bike ride or a multi-day hiking trip where you put out enough energy in a day that you know you can keep going the next day. These many, many days that we're working together here, practicing together here. And it's a bit more like the Tour de France. I don't know if you are interested in that kind of thing. I'm a bike rider, so I watch it a little bit uh, every now and then. It's on right now. And that's just amazing what those guys do. They're all men in that race, but it's amazing, right? They go over thousands of miles in two weeks. It's incredibly arduous um, terrain, dangerous, uh, steep winding, fast, all the different climatic conditions. Many of them get hurt. I remember hearing one guy say, oh yeah, we know when we get on our bikes in the morning, we're signing up for eight hours of pain. Hopefully your day here doesn't start that way. Oh my God, eight hours, you know, of doing this. Not, that's not the kind of effort we're talking about. The sort of, the big picture of it, the kind of enduring mind picture of it, I think is helpful, but not that intensity. We're not wanting to leave it all on the mat, as they say, in kind of sports. Um, But I often think if we put as much effort into our spiritual practice as those guys do into their athletic pursuits, we'd all be enlightened by now, right? They put so much energy into it. It's amazing. For us, it's a different question, though. As I said, it's really how can we put in enough effort that we find the benefits of the practice but we have enough left over that we can get up and do it again tomorrow. And here we are in the, really the heart of this retreat, this sweet middle ground where we've hopefully forgotten a little bit the challenges of those first couple of days, but the end not quite yet in sight. So we can just really be here and sort of marinate in this practice. Sometimes it's marination, sometimes it's a pressure cooker, right, where we're really turning up the steam. But just to see what happens as you steep the mind and heart over and over again in this intention of caring, in these wishes of caring, it has an effect. And hopefully you've started to feel that. And what it can do for us is begin to show 
that there's more choice in this, how our attitude towards ourselves and others and life, more choice than we thought. As we keep affirming the metta wishes for happiness, for ease, for kindness, we see, you know, the divergent path of the place where we go into that's more critical or judgmental and see it's a choice. Do we give energy to that or to the metta phrases, the metta wishes? It becomes clearer for us. Do I want to treat myself with harshness or with kindness? We think of these uh, retreats even... uh, uh, you know, we talk about applying for Medicare when you get to a certain age. Here we're applying for Medicare. There's no age limit and there's universal coverage. All you need to do is apply for it and apply it. Really, Medicare, to care for ourselves with Meta. And so it's a powerful practice. The other um, beautiful aspect of this practice that I want to speak some about tonight that often people don't realize as a benefit is the concentration side of this practice. Metta is one of the two main ways that we teach deep states of concentration in our tradition. The other is just simple awareness of the breath. But we can use this practice through the steadiness of the phrases and the other aspects of the practice to really bring the mind into deep states of concentration. Now, nine days is a short amount of time to experience a deepening of concentration. We usually say it takes a month or more for people to get a sense of that kind of deepening. But I think all of us can have a taste. All of us can increase this capacity to steady the mind, to focus the mind, to bring the mind into concentration. And this aspect of the practice of concentration is really important, really valuable, has many benefits all uh, on its own, separate from the development of the loving heart. The Buddha again and again spoke about the benefits uh, and almost the necessity of developing a concentrated mind, of deepening the mind in concentration. He said things like, never underestimate the power of a concentrated mind. This mind that's steady in this way can open um, to insight in a, in a far more powerful way than a mind that's scattered or disconnected. So metta is this great two-for-one package. You know, you're getting the benefit of the caring and the opening of the heart, but at the same time, this possibility of deepening in concentration. And what I always love about it is even if the metta feeling isn't strong, and we've said again and again, it won't be all the time. You know, I don't think it's even necessary or, or uh, um, possible that it's all the time loving and ecstatic. But if you can just be willing to say the phrases, you can know and trust that you're deepening the concentration. That has, as I said, its own beautiful benefits. But when the metta and the concentration come together, they really support each other and allow this um, loving heart to become integrated in a way that's powerful and unshakable, really. So I've been using uh, the word concentration to translate the Pali word samadhi. And even though it's the one, the word we tend to use, it's not a great translation uh, as these English 
translations often aren't of the Pali, that the, there's nuances in the Pali word samadhi that concentration doesn't have. Because usually when we think of concentration in English, we think of studying for exams or something, you know, don't disturb me, I'm concentrating. And there's a sense of narrowness of focus. Um, and concentration samadhi in our practice can have at times a little of that narrowing of focus, but it doesn't have to have. Better translations are more unification of mind, non-distractedness, steadiness of mind, collectedness, the sense of being fully with whatever it is you're choosing to pay attention to. But that that we're choosing to pay attention to can be very broad, can be very vast. It doesn't have to be narrow. And you can see that in the field of metta. There's a lot going on when the practice is really rolling with the phrases and the images and the feeling, the emotion and the sensations. But the concentration, the steady mind can hold all of that, can stay steady with that. And so it's interesting that even though the practice is actually somewhat complicated, I think I said in another session, it's a bit like juggling with all these different things that we're kind of cultivating and working with. Um, it's actually that aspect of it, as the mind finds that easier and easier to settle with, that allows the mind to settle in to, to the steadiness that develops a concentration. The foundation of that concentration is the phrases. And it's why we keep emphasizing, just keep saying the phrases for many reasons, you know, because it means we're not thinking judging thoughts or critical thoughts or restless thoughts or thoughts of past or future. We're actually staying here in the present moment with the metta. But it also is the the doorway or the, the way we deepen the concentration. And what happens as the mind gets more collected around the phrases particularly, but all of the aspects of um, the practice, the feeling can be a place we can concentrate. The visual image of the person is a great place to deepen the concentration. So any of those, and sometimes they all come together. As the mind steadies in that way, what naturally happens is that the hindrances that Larry spoke about a few nights ago, these these um, forces in the mind that distract us, that keep us from seeing clearly, that keep us keep popping us out of the present moment of wanting and not wanting, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, they tend to diminish. And some of the pleasure of concentration, of a concentrated mind, is that diminishment of the hindrances. Doesn't mean they're uprooted. If the conditions change, they'll come back. But just having that relief of the relentlessness of the hindrances um, is very profound for people, just to feel a mind that's not in that distracted, restless, aversive state. Beautiful. And so there's a big reason why metta is a good practice for concentration. 
If you look at any of the lists, and the Buddha loved lists, you know, if you know any of his teachings, you know that he was very methodical and liked to put things in lists, and there's great reasons why that's helpful. But if you look at any of the lists that talk about the development of concentration, they'll have just prior to the state of concentration what's called the proximate cause. And that's the quality, the practice, that most easily leads into that state, in this case, concentration. And what's nearly always prior to concentration on these kinds of lists is not effort, is not striving, is not force or wish or determination or will. It's happiness. It's contentment. That's the most common proximate cause for concentration. And so you can see why metta, as it sweetens the mind and heart, steadies it on the phrases, is really a beautiful vehicle to help us develop concentration. Even the purification aspect of the practice is helpful because one of the big hindrances to concentration is restlessness, regret, and worry. And as we purify the mind and heart and let go of some of the things that that bind us, that keep us in a limited sense of who we are, as we let go of that, the mind can more easily rest and develop in the concentration. So again, why metta is such a good vehicle for developing concentration. But because of its complexity and because of the purification that naturally and even necessarily happens, the concentration that builds, it actually can take longer to build the concentration than through some other practices. But the type of concentration that gets built is very resilient because it's being built through this complexity of practice and through and out of the purification that we've gone through. So I love this um, aspect of metta as con- for concentration is the mind and heart very steady, but it's got this malleability this resilience that when we do simple breath meditation for concentration might be quicker, might be kind of simpler and purer, but it's a little more brittle, more easily disturbed or broken. And metta for concentration really has these uh, beautiful qualities of the heart. So it's a great vehicle. Um, I think I spoke in... I think it was my opening night uh, talk a little bit about my experience with metta, how I initially really resisted it. I thought it was sounded like the, you know, the, the last thing that I would want to do to spend, you know, uh, uh, any amount of time just, you know, wishing happiness, wishing well, yuck, you know, sappy, soppy, whatever words you might want to use. But I realized it was what I probably most needed to do and dove in the deep end with a six-week retreat. And it was really challenging for me. It challenged every aspect of my being, of my sense of who I am. It fed into all of my beliefs that I was unlovable and I couldn't love and I'll never love and I never was loved and lost and lonely and afraid. Fed into all of that because I didn't have the experience I thought I should be having. I didn't have the experience I thought the teachers thought I should be having. And that's even was even harder, going into interview after interview and 
feeling, projecting on them that they were disappointed in me. And it just fed into all those times I felt like a failure. And I can remember going into one particular interview with my teacher who was very kind. And he adjusted my practice in a little way. Why don't you try this, he said. Or maybe he didn't even say that. I just had it in my mind. And I can remember going out of that interview down to my walking path at IMS and replaying. Ever done that? Replaying what he said, what I said. And from my distorted view, distorting completely what he said until finally what I heard was, she's hopeless. You know, try that. Maybe that at last. Maybe it'll do something and she'll get somewhere. And I just, you know, built that up into this mountain of negativity. You know, who did I think I was? Six weeks of metta? It's hopeless. I can never do this. Uh, and, And all of the judgment, it was such a familiar place to be. I remember thinking, could I fake it? You know, could I go the next month and just go and say, yeah, yeah, Meta, I love, you know, friend, yeah, it's great, and just pretend that it was working? I, you know, seriously had that idea. And I think I said, you know, anything to get out of here, the school bus, the plane, I didn't quite get to wanting bombs to drop, because I was very self-directed, not so much outward-directed, but I certainly wanted to disappear. I did not want to be there. And it was such a familiar place to be, but... There was this moment of grace, I can only call it that, and I I have to believe that it came from the practice. It was two weeks into this retreat where I just had this thought, you know, that that place is really familiar. I was, you know, like on the edge of the abyss, could go down there and wallow for hours, days. I had weeks left to go. (laughs) I could do that for weeks. It was very familiar. But I had the thought, what would it take to not go there. Because I had realized that at some point I would come out, something would shift, something would change, and you know, I'd kind of pick myself up and find some balance again. What would it take to get from here to there without beating myself up, dwelling in this morass of self-pity for hours or days or weeks? And what I realized was I'd have to accept that this was the practice that I have. This is what my metta looks like. And if I was going to want it to be any different, have it have to be any different, I was going to suffer because it wasn't different. If If I could make it better, I would have. This is what it was like. And that was such a relief to just drop the sense of pressure, the sense of expectation of meeting some bar that I had made for myself and just say, this is it. This is as good as I can do. And I wish I could say, you know, then the heavens opened up and rainbows came and everything was... It wasn't. But I could continue with sincerity. And because of that willingness to continue, the concentration deepened and there were huge benefits from my practice for that. And the metta was able to continue. And huge bouts of purification happened that wouldn't have happened, especially if I was faking it and not even really doing it. But this was so central and to me, and to see for me how all of those aspects had to come together. The metta, the acceptance, the kindness that just said it's okay, and then the concentration could develop and they could all support each other and allow this practice to continue. I'm really seeing, as we all give our talks and talk to each other in the teacher room, that the theme of this practice 
this retreat, more than other retreats, other meta retreats, even though we always talk about it, but somehow, maybe it's just for me, I'm really coalescing. The theme is kindness. And I'm thinking I'll just stop calling it loving kindness and just call it kindness. Because that is, to me, so central to this practice and so powerful for us. Um, and it can seem a little pedestrian, you know, just kindness, always a kind person, a kind act. But I think kindness is underrated. If you look at what happens when, when there's true kindness, when there's an act of kindness, all of these beautiful qualities are brought forth. There's a caring, there's generosity. We're often offering something to someone, whether it's our friendship or a, a gift or a, a, you know something they need, opening a door, um, bringing a meal. There's empathy, because we're acknowledging, we're, we're feeling with them, seeing what they need. We give a sense of safety to people. You feel safe when you know you're with someone kind. It's a great gift. And in it, there's that letting go of renunciation of what in it for us, or a sense of selfishness. It's selfless as we act in a kind way. And I often say, if all we did on this retreat was learn to be a little more kind to ourselves and to others, this whole retreat would be really time well spent. It's huge. And we've talked about this, I think I said this already, that we can't so much choose to love. Loving comes out of caring, it comes out of proximity. It comes out of our family relationships. Our, you know, we come into intimate relationships and learn to love that person. But even, and even happiness is somewhat conditional. I think we can more choose to be happy, but even better, I think we learn how to create the conditions and to recognize happiness when it's there. But as Temple said, quoting the Dalai Lama, or choose choose how did he say it uh, choose be kind whenever possible and it's always possible it's such a great line it's always possible to choose kindness the dalai lama also would say things like my religion is kindness so I'm not buddhist my religion is being kind practicing kindness he says when we feel Love and kindness towards others, it not only makes others feel loved and cared for, but helps us also to develop inner happiness and peace. So it's not just that in kindness we're giving something away, kind towards others. We actually increase our own capacity for well-being. So I've been talking to people about kindness in the interviews and how important it is. And someone I spoke to today mentioned a speech that they had read by um, George Saunders, I think it was, on happiness, a commencement speech. So I thought I'll look it up and to see, you know, I wanted to talk about kindness. It's great. So I thought I'd share some of it with you. George Saunders is an American writer, a professor, and it was a commencement speech at Syracuse University, class of 2013. So I'm stealing from George Saunders, but I think it's great. This is him now. Down through the ages, a traditional form has evolved for this type of speech, which is some old fart, his best years behind him, who over the course of his life has made a series of dreadful mistakes, that would be me, 
give, gives heartfelt advice to a group of shining, energetic young people with all of their best years ahead of them. That would be you. And you're shining and, you know, however old, young. And I t- intend to respect that tradition. Now, one useful thing you can do with an old person, in addition to borrowing money from them or asking them to do one of their old-time dances so you can watch while laughing, is ask, looking back, what do you regret? And they'll tell you. Sometimes, as you know, they'll tell you even if you haven't asked. Sometimes, even when you specifically requested they not tell you, they'll tell you. So, what do I regret? Being poor from time to time? Not really. Working terrible jobs like knuckle puller in a slaughterhouse? And don't even ask what that entails. No, I don't regret that. Skinny dipping in a river in Sumatra, a little buzzed, and looking up and seeing like 300 monkeys sitting on a pipeline, pooping down into the river, (laughs) the river in which I was swimming with my mouth open naked, and getting deathly ill afterwards and staying sick for the next seven months? Not so much. (laughs) Do I regret the occasional humiliation? Like once, playing hockey in front of a big crowd, including this girl I really liked, I somehow managed, while falling and emitting this weird whooping noise, to score on my own goalie, while also sending my stick flying into the crowd, nearly hitting that girl? No, I don't even regret that. But here's something I do regret. And he goes on to tell this story about this young girl in his um, seventh grade class called Ellen, who was shy, and people picked on her. And he said, I didn't really even pick on her but I didn't defend her. And he says, now why do I regret that? Why 42 years later am I still thinking about that? Relative to most of the other kids, I was actually pretty nice to her, but it still bothers me. So here's something I know to be true, even though it's a little corny and I don't quite know what to do with it. What I regret most in my life are failures of kindness. And so he goes on to say, why aren't we kinder? How do we do this? How might we become more loving, more open, less selfish, more present? He said, let me say this, there are ways. You already know that because in your life there have been high kindness periods and low kindness periods. And you know what inclined you to the former and away from the latter. Education is good, immersing ourselves in a work of art, good, prayer is good, meditation's good, a frank talk with a dear friend, etc. But kindness, it turns out, is hard. It starts out all rainbows and puppy dogs and expands to include, well, everything. One thing in our favor, some of this becoming kinder happens naturally with age. It might be a simple matter of attrition. As we get older, we come to see how useless it is to be selfish. How illogical, really. We come to love other people and are thereby counter-instructed in our own centrality. We get our butts kicked by real life and people come to our defense and help us and we learn that we're not separate and don't want to be. We see people near and dear to us dropping away and gradually become convinced that maybe we too will drop away someday a long time from now. So most people as they age become less selfish and more loving. And so my heartfelt wish for you is, as you get older, yourself will diminish and you will grow in love. You will gradually be replaced by love. 
And since according to me, your life is going to be a gradual process of becoming kinder and more loving, hurry up, speed it along, start right now. Do all the other things, the ambitious things, get travel, get rich, get famous, innovate, lead, fall in love, etc. But what, as, as you do that, to the extent you can, err in the direction of kindness. Err in the direction of kindness. That's what he regretted, not being kind. Err in the direction of kindness. And of all the things he said to do, we could add, right, practice metta. Really do that. Because metta, the centrality of it, is kindness and acceptance. Not judging or being critical. And again, I love Temple and his image of the practice like planting the seed of a redwood tree. Impossible to imagine conceive in that seed the enormity of the tree that might grow. We don't have any idea of the capacity of our heart, but if you keep inclining the mind in this direction, we never know what might develop out of this heart, however limited it might seem, out of this willingness, this wish to be more kind. So this confluence of Trees and kindness. I, I saw the other day this quote from Ramda, so wanted to read it to you about how the, the opposite of kindness is this sense of judging, evaluating, and criticism. Ramda says, When you go out into the woods and you look at trees, you see all kinds of different trees. And some of them are bent, and some of them are straight, and some of them are evergreen, and some of them are whatever. And you look at the tree and you allow it. You appreciate it. You see why it is the way it is. You sort of understand that it didn't get enough light, so it turned that way. And you don't get all emotional about it. You just allow it. You appreciate the tree. The minute you get near humans, you lose all that. And you're constantly saying, you're to this or I'm to this. That judging mind comes in. And so I practice turning people into trees which means appreciating them just as they are. And you're included in that. Just the same way we allow nature to be just as it is. We don't judge, criticize, evaluate. Can we do that for ourselves? Because a huge part of this practice, for all the well-wishing we're doing for others, is the well-wishing for ourselves, the opening of the heart to ourselves, kindness for ourselves. Because this, for many people, is actually the biggest area of suffering. This sense of judging and criticism, lack of self-acceptance, even self-hatred. And what's so interesting about it is it's the one area of suffering that we can actually do the most about. Because we created it. We learnt to be judgmental. We learn to be self-critical. And the very fact that it's learned and conditioned mean we can unlearn it and uncondition it. And this practice is one of the most powerful reprogramming tools for that tendency of mind that I know. And maybe you've, you've seen that this tendency to judging, evaluation, or criticism, it might even seem stronger on this retreat I actually don't think that's true. I think we're either just noticing it more. Most of the time we're so familiar with it that we just say, yep, that's true, that's right. It's like this, you know, bad, wrong, critical. 
or the contrast between the judging and the metta wishes becomes so stark that we feel the impact of that negativity and that cruelty, that critical voice. The contrast really points it out. This is actually really helpful. We need to feel how painful it is to be so negative, to be so critical of ourselves. Most of us have this ongoing running commentary, right? Narrating what's happening. And what's the center of that commentary, right? Me. The story of me. What am I doing? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What do I need? What do I want? What do I don't want? How am I doing? What, you know, how was I doing compared to yesterday? What about tomorrow? What do other people think about me? What do the teachers think about me? You know, what are my friends going to think about? It? It's the story of me, right? This is what we obsess about on and on and on. I like to tell this uh, old joke about, you know, a typical first date scenario where one of the people is going on and on and telling the story of themselves taking up a lot of space, but finally they stop and they say, but that's enough about me. Tell me, what do you think about me? (laughs) But that's, you know, isn't that so much what we do? It's like always evaluating and checking out how am I being seen? You know, I'm doing the walking and there's that little vigilance about, you know, am I looking good? Am I doing it right? You know, when we're sitting, how, how are people perceiving us? The trouble is, for most of us, that inner voice isn't neutral. It's not just telling it like it is, or we think it is, but it's not right. It has this edge to it. It's critical. It's evaluating. This was such a strong tendency in my mind that I really had to work on it a lot. I did meta practice. I read books about it, you know, included it as, as a, a powerful part of my practice. I did a workshop on it with this man, Byron Brown, and he's a student of uh, Hamid Ali, who founded the Diamond Heart School over in the East Bay. And he has a book called Soul Without Shame that I really like, where he says, judgment is a, often a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its, 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 its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. So this is not just kind of an idiosyncratic thing that you do that, you know, is outside the practice. Transforming that tendency of mind is central to what we do here, not just the metta, to any practice that we might take up. To be able to have a sense of trust or confidence, love and acceptance of ourselves, this is central, this is huge. And so using this practice to work with that tendency, if this is uh, a part of your inner experience, this is what it does. As we affirm more and more the wish to be happy and really say it and mean it. You know, and it's interesting how there can be one part of us really wishing that and yet this little voice going, uh-uh, not going to happen. No, not today. No, not, not, not with this body or this mind or this heart, whatever. But we keep strengthening, strengthening that wish and see it as a valid 
human wish, a necessary healing for us to deepen in our practice and start to see, as I said, more that there is a choice, that we can actually feed and strengthen this sense of caring for ourselves and that very feeding will necessarily starve and limit the ill-wishing, the, the not-liking. I mentioned in my meta-guiding the other day um, this phrase I often offer, may I love and accept myself just as I am. And I remember the first time I heard a teacher suggest that and it was almost like I broke out into a cold sweat. You know, could I say that? You know, love and accept myself just as I am? Not after the 10-point improvement program or after I'd, you know, fixed this part of myself and gotten rid of that part of myself. I didn't think it was possible to even say it. But I did. I just said it. I didn't mean it. I know I didn't mean it. But the more that I said, it's true, but I said it. And the more I allowed myself just to say it, I found that I could say it At first, all I could do was say it without that sabotaging voice coming in. And then I could say it and was just kind of neutral. And then I could say it and I could kind of mean it and then really mean it. So to start to see all of the things that you do here on the retreat, especially coming on the retreat, this this is really hard evidence that you want to be happy, that you care about yourself. Cleaning your teeth is an act of metta. Taking a shower, taking care as you dress, exercising the body, stretching. These are acts of kindness. You are expressing metta to yourself. See how that's actually building that capacity to wish well and to care. This is all important because we start to challenge that view, that idea that we're not worthy. And we can get to see those judging thoughts for what they are. They're just a blip of energy in the mind. You can choose to believe them. There they are, solid, real. Or, whoop, let them go. Start to give more energy, more weight to the thoughts of kindness and well-wishing. They will strengthen. They will gather momentum. This is all part of this process of purification the temple spoke about last night. And as we allow that process, as we honor that process, through the forgiveness that Larry taught so beautifully today, through the willingness to be in that, those difficult spaces of the old memories and the, the, the places of contraction, as we hold those with metta, the purification processes naturally start to steady and die down a little. They'll go, you know, it doesn't mean we're through or done, but we can have these times, these periods where the mind is a little steady, and that's when the concentration can start to come in. We can't leapfrog. We can't just say, no, 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 I'm not going to do any of that. I just want the concentration. We have to be willing to go through those challenges, to come to this place of real acceptance, That's what allows the mind, this contentment, sukha, is contentment, not agitated, not aversive. Then the concentration can start to come in. How we start to tell is that the practice becomes more effortless. 
the phrases come as we shift from person to person, the images perhaps are steadier, the connection becomes more reliable. Doesn't mean it's, you know, bliss and golden light and uh, really effusive, but just more steady is what we look for, steady. And then these factors can are they are getting developed, but we can perhaps start to notice them, and we call them jhanic factors. We don't often talk about them in other retreats because they're a hallmark of concentration, but this is a concentration practice. So I just want to mention them, not that you should go looking for them or if you're not having them, you know, something's wrong. They're a process, as I said, of the steadying of the mind that often takes weeks, if not months, to develop. But sometimes knowing a little bit about the map can help clarify some things. So these jhana factors, they're five factors of mind and heart that we're always developing in any meditation practice, some more subtle than others. Um, And as they strengthen and deepen, they become jhana, which is this deep state of absorption. Even if we don't reach that state, any steadying of the mind is actually really helpful. As I said, benefits to this mind that's not agitated, not, not restless, not always sort of caught in the critical mindset, this mind that the Buddha called flexible, malleable, steady, we can start to taste that. We, we, we set our mind on an object and the mind stays there. The first of these two jhana factors go together. They're called vitaka and vichara. And vitaka is the aiming of attention and vichara is the sustaining of that attention on the object sometimes called directed and evaluated thought, but I find that a little kind of misleading, but aiming and sustaining. And we don't aim at the beginning of a meditation session and sustain for the whole half hour, 45 minutes or hour, whatever. It's with each phrase, each, each um, connection with the metta feeling. So we're always refreshing it. This Vitaka and Vichara, they're the workhorses of our practice. They're the only ones we can have any control over because they can actually arise out of intention to connect with the phrase and to sustain the attention throughout the phrase. And so we have to do that over and over again. Don't think of it as like connecting and hanging on, but always this kind of beginner's mind, this willingness to begin again. Each new phrase, that sense of connecting, that there's something new here. It's not just rote, it's not just repetition. To do this, we have to shift our relationship to the phrases, that they're not just sort of the, you know, Sisyphus and the boulder we're pushing uphill, or there can be a little bit of that. It's not just, you know, something, a penance that we have to do. We have to fall a little bit in love with the phrases teacher um, who was really helpful for me is Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahma Wangso. He's an English monk who lives in um, Australia. And he talks about subhasanya and how no- important that is for concentration. Subha means beautiful, sanya means perception. And he mainly uses the practice of breath for concentration. He says you need to fall in love with the breath. You will never get concentrated by hammering the attention onto the breath, by just through sheer force of will trying to get concentrated. You can always get so far with that, but it will always crumble. You have to fall in love with the breath. You have to, you know, uh, 
He called it the beautiful breath. Well, here, this is why metta is so useful for concentration, because we have a love object, our beloved, especially in these early days. And it's certainly if we can put ourselves in that, car, in that category and just fall into that sense of absorption with our object, this is what allows the Vitaka and Vichara to really steady and continue. That can then lead to the third jhanic factor, which is pitti, P-I-T-I, not P-I-T-Y, pitti, Pali word. And it's usually translated as rapture, also joy or rapt attention, zestful interest. It's when we've created enough energy and steadiness that we naturally, the mind just naturally absorbs into the chosen object. It's like there's a magnetic attraction becomes effortless. Um, And even though rapture is a mental factor, we often feel it in the body, can have very strong um, bodily components. It can be like uh, goosebumps, the hair rising, can be a sense of uplift, can be a sense of shimmering energy, can be a sense of light, uh, light, the body filled with light, of visual images of light, like the sun bright, even though your eyes are closed, can have a lot of pushing and pulling qualities. And every time, you know, I might talk about it, I know most people go, yes, where, you know, I want that, that means meditation is going well. Yes, and, you know, pity is a sign that the concentration is deepening, but it's not always pleasant. Um, it can actually be quite disturbing at times. So it's not, you know, something that we necessarily want to go chasing, but it can, it can happen and it does happen in practice. But it can get very tiring also. But as we stabilize more, as the pity kind of gets more integrated, isn't so uh, destabilizing or tiring, it leads to the next factor, which is sukha. Sukha opposite of dukkha. Sukha is happiness, contentment. Uh, and a definition I like is happy contentment in mind and body. So we've steadied the mind with the vitakha and chara, this energy, um, this rapt attention has arisen, and we've stayed steady with the, with the concentration. And then the energy softens a little, and this sweetness of sukha can come. I remember the first time I experienced sukha. Everyone has some similar kind of experience. My visceral sense was I felt like one of those long pieces of seaweed, you know, like kelp, just sort of moving in the water. But what I was swaying in was a sea of warm honey, just that sense of sweetness. And we all get a little attached, but um, (laughs) you learn it's conditional, it's impermanent. But to just know that this mind is capable of that kind of sweetness, that kind of um, happiness that's not from conditions, external conditions, not getting what we want, but actually through this steadiness of mind. And so the mind really finds this deep contentment. And then the last factor, ekagata, one-pointedness of mind. It's often a synonym for samadhi, for concentration, where, again, this refinement from the the energetic um, absorption of the pity, the more subtle connection of the sukha, 
and this very refined singleness of mind, steadiness of mind, the ekagata. And as these factors come into balance, this is how the mind can fall into the first jhana. The first jhana is comprised of these five factors. Now, as I said, I outline this not, this is a short retreat. Most people, nearly everyone, will never get in near this territory. It takes a long time. But just to give a sense of the map, of the territory, and that this practice is a powerful way to deepen in this, in this direction. But it comes from the willingness to be where you are, to be with whatever's happening with kindness, whatever purification might be happening, whatever restlessness or agitation, and then the steadiness, the willingness to keep coming back morning, noon, and night. This is what deepens this practice. And that's all we need to do and all we can do. We can't make this happen. But with this steadiness, with this um, effort that we can keep going with, you know, again, not leaving it all, we're not sort of running the sprint or even the marathon where we collapse, but how do we keep meeting this moment, meeting it with kindness? And then the whole path of practice can develop. The meta qualities can deepen, the concentration can deepen, the levels of acceptance of self and other can go to profound levels, this deep, unshakable confidence and trust and faith in ourselves. Because what metta does is work on every aspect of our being, every aspect of our lives, if we let it, if we really surrender and open to this practice. All out of the steadiness of the vitaka and vichara, over and over again, each phrase, being willing to put in that initial amount of energy to say it, say it through to the end, and then the next phrase. To work with the judging mind, the critical mind, to let go of our stories, literally to see there's a choice, that we're training the mind here, training it towards kindness. And we have to literally, and we can, renounce, give up, abandon, those judging thoughts, those distracting thoughts, those thoughts of uh, limit and, and, uh, and um, difficulty, that there are more choices here than we thought. As we cultivate the thoughts of kindness, the thoughts of metta, that naturally diminishes the negativity, the criticism, the judgment, and the evaluation. And this process, this supporting and empowering the thoughts of kindness, the beneficial thoughts, the thoughts that lead to well-being, and letting go of, the Buddha would say, abandoning the thoughts of difficulty, of negativity, of ill will. This process was central to the Buddha's own awakening. He talks about how his recognizing the power of doing that allowed his mind to deepen that night of his awakening, and come to freedom. For us, whether it leads to our full awakening, it can certainly lead to deep healing and well-being and more and more freedom in our lives. And the, seeing the possibility of this choosing, 
we can choose kindness, we can choose metta. This is a choice we can make. We can apply for metta care and let us support us in every aspect of our life. Out of being with whatever it is, not trying to get around that, there's no around. There's only through, but the through has this direction. So we bring the forgiveness, the compassion, the kindness to our experience. This is the direction it goes. Greater and greater healing, greater and greater confidence, greater and greater kindness and freedom. So I want to finish with this beautiful poem by Hafez called It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. And I really think of metta as the encouragement of light against our being. It, it enlightens us. It brings light into the dark places, the place we've, places we've rejected, have been afraid of, not willing to open to. So opening to dif- the what's difficult, this is really important in this practice. But out of that, we make friends with our minds, we make friends with our hearts, we make friends with this body. We start to trust ourselves, gain the confidence and the faith that this is possible. We can do this, be more kind, more loving, more present. Steady mind and an open heart. So let's just sit quietly, let the words settle. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to the world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. Thank you for your attention. A little over half an hour now for walking and your metta practice and encourage you to enjoy the beauty of the cool night air, perhaps pick up the energy a little and come back, join us for the chanting of the metta sutta to end the evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.